Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBurge. It is June the 9th, 2022. So shout out to my mom this morning who did all the hard work 54 years ago. There you go. Sing along if you know it. Yep. Today's my birthday. Thank you. Um, All ready for all of the well wishes. Thank you to Angela who put a big sign on my door this morning and balloons outside my door. Super nice. I'm sure there's party hats in my future. Um, A summary of headlines before we bring our friend Ben Johnson on, because after all, it is Thursday morning. Um, Let's see. Let's go this direction. A man from California was arrested between 1 and 2 a.m. on Wednesday morning outside the private home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The man was arrested for attempted murder after telling a 911 dispatcher that he had come from the West Coast for the express purpose of killing a specific Supreme Court justice and he had a gun in his suitcase. Um, Later in the day, yesterday, after hearing testimony from a pediatrician who described the scene in the emergency room in Uvalde following the shooting that resulted in not only the death, but uh, really horrific bodily mutilation, in some cases the decapitation of children in his town, the House of Representatives uh, passed what I will describe as a sweeping bill Uh, If the Senate were to confirm it, it would raise the minimum age to purchase an assault rifle in the United States from 18 to 21. Um, I don't think it stands much of a chance in the Senate, but it is is something that you should know about. And I do think it's time for a conversation among those of us who are uh, responsible gun owners about, you know, just what needs to happen um, in the United States in relationship to access to assault uh, style weapons. One more headline here. A pro-abortion terrorist firebombed a pro-life pregnancy center in Buffalo, and then they vandalized the remains of the building with the name of their organization. So it shouldn't be hard for law enforcement agents to to track them down, having tagged the remains of the building after they destroyed it. And 90 gymnasts, uh, 90, 90 gymnasts who were abused by... um, Dr. Larry Nasser have sued the FBI seeking a billion dollars in damages. There are more than 90 uh, women who were girls at the time uh, whose concerns were disregarded by the FBI for more than a year. And um, and so that is going to be an interesting case to follow, follow as well. The national average of a gallon of gas in terms of what you're going to pay at the pump, regular unleaded, now stands at $9. Oh, $9. <laughs> that would... That Don't would, do that. That would be bad. <laughs> Hopefully that was not prophetic. Uh, $4.97, <clears throat> just three pennies shy of five bucks a gallon in most places across the country. However, in some places it is already far above that. Meanwhile, the made-for-TV hearing of the January 6th Select Committee begins airing in prime time tonight. And I say begins because apparently 
it's intended to be a full series of television programs. Um, so uh, I know many people will be watching that. We will certainly report on it tomorrow morning. And in a headline that I think really requires no commentary whatsoever. In the midst of all of this, the president of the United States, having not having not given a press conference and answered press questions from the press in now more than 110 days, did appear last night on the late night comedy show Jimmy Kimmel Live. Yeah. With that, uh, we're going to talk with our friend Ben Johnson. He is the rights writer, senior reporter and editor at The Washington Stand. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson is back. You can check out what he's working on now at WashingtonStand.com. Ben, good morning. Happy birthday, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. If I had a noisemaker, I would blow one. That's fine. I'm just happy to happy that you've uh, agreed to join me this morning in conversation. God save the queen. Um, so I think that as Americans, that's a, an interesting turn of phrase. Also super interesting for Christians to consider. So in this uh, time when, you know, folks are still reflecting on the jubilee, the platinum jubilee of the queen, you know, wh- what do you make of the of the phrase God save the queen? Well, you know, I, so it's a phrase that uh, it, it brings some religious in, uh, impetus into uh, what is an overwhelmingly secular society in the UK, far beyond what uh, we are here. Uh, you know, regular church attendance is uh, is an absolute minimum over there. Uh, there is uh, more belief, I believe, in UFOs than there is in, in the Christian God. And yet whenever the Queen comes on, you hear this phrase, God save the Queen, which, by the way, the song is where we get uh, the tune for uh, My Country Tis of Thee. It's the exact same tune, just different words. Uh, so so I, I think that it's, uh, it's outstanding that uh, we still have this phrase. And the Queen is uh, really one of these institutions that unites everyone in the UK. Uh, even uh, the small faction of uh, what are known as Republicans over there, that is people who want to turn from a monarchy into a full-blown Republican uh, and uh, order of government, and abolish the monarchy, uh, generally have a good view of the queen herself. Uh, Not so much her first son. Uh, Her grandchildren, uh, to some degree, certainly uh, William is well-respected, and Kate Middleton, well-respected throughout the the world. And so uh, it's it's, uh, really something, when we listen to the queen, uh, she often gives sermons. Uh, If you listen to her Christmas messages and so forth, her sermons uh, often are far better than those of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that she has a, a unique position in maintaining the faith throughout the area. And uh, really, faith is is uh, a, an important part of her life. Uh, it's actually an important part of the life of uh, her son, Prince Charles, although you wouldn't always know it from his behavior. And uh, I believe it's also important to uh, Prince William is going to carry on the tradition. I think that there are times that we hear things in the culture and we don't just, you know, take a pause and say, what what does that mean and what does it mean for us to 
recognize the reality of God and the reality of the saving nature of God and the reality of God's sovereignty even over this individual who, um, you know, is recognized as a monarch and has served for so long. Um, she is certainly one of the most dignified women um, in this, you know, in the age in which we live. And so I just didn't want that to that opportunity to talk about that phrase to, to pass us by. Um, Undeniably. You and I, just just one one sure. uh, quick uh, note, which is that, uh, of course, we read the King James Bible. So much of the language that we use for God, as you're pointing out, is royal language. Uh, it's language that doesn't readily translate to those of us who are raised in an American context. So some of the uh, some of the nobility, some of the uh, pomp and circumstance that surrounds the queen that we've seen on her 70th anniversary in uh, in the monarchy is something that uh, can remind us of the way that we are supposed to approach our true sovereign, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So helpful. Um, let's talk about uh, institutions. You and I have both read um, a piece in Hillsdale's um, in Primus uh, entitled Laying Siege to the Institutions. What's going on in the United States of America in terms of um, the reliance upon and maybe the durability of our institutions? Well, it is precisely a siege, as the uh, piece points out, and this is something that uh, we have discussed uh, back and forth for some time. The piece is written by uh, Chris Rufo, who has done unbelievable spade work in uh, looking through the internal documents of corporations and uh, deep buried documents within the U.S. government, and he's learning what uh, workers are being subjected to in terms of indoctrination in those institutions. So uh, if you want to have a job in the federal government, if you want to have a job in many major corporations like Disney, you have to be subjected to certain kinds of uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity, uh, uh, diversity training. And often uh, it's not diversity training, which would be a positive thing in, in the way that it sounds. Uh, Christians would generally say that we're in favor of diversity. The issue is that it is, in fact, teaching extreme ideological uh, concepts that many people would find uh, repulsive or repugnant uh, to the foundations of the country. Uh, and one of the people that he quotes in this is someone who uh, is the most important uh, ideological thinker that you've never heard of, Antonio Gramsci. Uh, for those who are not familiar with him, we've discussed him sometimes on this program, but Antonio Gramsci was a communist who lived about 100 years ago. And it, you know, it's often when you look at the history of ideologies, the first generation isn't the dangerous one. It's the second iteration that's important. Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s in Italy looked back at Marxism and he said, we failed. Why have we failed? We said that we were going to be the voice of the workers and the workers overwhelmingly are citing against us. When we look at the values of the workers, they don't share our values. They're not rising up to overthrow the institutions. In fact, they oppose everything that we do. Why is that? And he looked at them and he said the middle class overwhelmingly believes in things like patriotism. They believe in religion. They believe in family. And uh, they believe in the cohesion of uh, their own uh, area. They want, to, they want to improve everyone's life in the uh, cities that they live in. So this is the exact opposite of what we stand for. We stand for a revolution based in class. And he said the problem is they have a false consciousness. They have been raised by institutions that have taught them that these concepts are important. And so we must, and this is a quotation from him, uh, he said, uh, we must triumph by first capturing culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. Uh, 
By the way, the line just before that is, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. So that's that's his understanding, that you capture these institutions and you use them to teach your ideology. And that's what's happening, uh, not just in those institutions, but also in the military and federal law enforcement and elsewhere. And perhaps we can talk about that uh, separately in just a moment. But but that is precisely the the uh, the fission and the uh, the inflection point that you're seeing at school board meetings, at uh, diversity training sessions, at uh, some of the revelations that have come forward about what's being taught in uh, in Disney and so forth. They are creating a co- a consciousness that reflects this extreme ideology, which is opposed to everything that Christians stand for. All right. So when we come back, let's uh, let's continue this conversation. I'd like to maybe bring forward one one example. I mean, in a in a person, um, Chesa Boudin, San Francisco's now recalled district attorney. You talk about one person who makes your point about the danger of a second generation um, ideologue. Um, you know, I don't think there's been much press coverage about his parents and sort of the home in which he grew up in. But, um, you know, he was raised by radicals. And and now we are seeing, you know, what happens when not only is that radicalized child um, sent to one of America's most elite educational institutions, but then elected to, uh, you know, to oversee the judicial process um, in a in a city as large as San Francisco, like that's that's a conversation to be had in relationship to this, um, as is the uh, the gun bill that passed the House, um, which I suspect has very little chance of passing the Senate. But I want you to talk about the diversity training for federal law enforcement that is included in that proposal as well. We're talking with Ben Johnson. You can find what he's working on at WashingtonStand.com. My Country Tis of Thee, or better known in other parts as God Save the Queen. Uh, we're talking with Ben Johnson from Washington Stand. You can find it at WashingtonStand.com. He also tweets at The Rights Writer. Um, ben, the recall of uh, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, uh, you know, I think made lots of news this week. We'll continue to, to make lots of news. Um, what people seem to not recognize is that, you know, he is literally the product of not only the home in which he was raised, um, but the educational system, uh, you know, from which he graduated. Well, that he is, uh, as you mentioned, his parents uh, were, were weather underground terrorists who went to prison for uh, for murder. And so he was raised by two people who are somewhat better known, Bernadine Dorn and uh, her husband, Bill Ayers, uh, who was, of course, one of the intellectual leaders of the weather underground. And then Later on, was uh, involved in the university and the academic movement, as was Dorn, and uh, was a neighbor of uh, Barack Obama, who helped launch his political career early on in their neighborhood at the University of Chicago. Now, Chesa Boudin uh, was was raised within this idea, again, this second generation, dangerous generation, that they look back and they say, how was it that we failed? Uh, Why is it that my parents are in prison? And he said, what I need to do is go through the system. Instead of trying to overthrow the system violently, I'll go within and capture the institutions and use them to advance this ideology. And so when he went through Ivy League education, and then he found uh, a place where he could apply his trade, which was as a prosecutor DA in uh, San Francisco. 
And he was so far to the left in terms of his lax enforcement of the law that even the people of San Francisco could not abide what he had done because they were living with the results of it. He was following his ideology. He was following uh, his extreme radicalism. And ultimately, you saw that uh, a, a town where crime was already on the rise and the quality of life was already diminishing before he got there uh, turned into a genuine crisis of criminality uh, to the uh, to such an extent that uh, even a city as far left as San Francisco turned him out by an overwhelming margin. But that's that's the danger of this institutional capture uh, of radicals who go mainstream, who fly under the radar uh, of most mainstream institutions or who are encouraged, uh, frankly, by many in the media who share their prior beliefs. And then uh, and then ultimately they end up in positions of power where they affect the rest of us. Yeah, I, I often uh, field the question, Ben, from God-fearing Christians across the country who, you know, kind of slept through some of the institutional changes, in, you know, over the course of the last maybe two generations. And they say, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to this place? And my answer is, I mean, we, we got here quite honestly. The, the people who now advocate as young adults um, for all kinds of things that as a Christian, I, you know, I regard as immoral and uh, and and utterly unsustainable in terms of a culture. Those are values and ideas that they've been raised on. They've been taught. They come by them honestly, um, and they they believe that those ideas are American ideas. They believe those ideas in many cases are Christian ideas because we're now, you know, at least two generations into the reality of mainline Christianity in the U.S., where many 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 pastors and denominational leaders have been in Sunday school and vacation Bible school uh, from the pulpit teaching things that are actually expressly contrary um, to uh, uh, an actual biblical worldview. I mean, so people, second generation ideologues come by their ideology honestly. They honestly believe um, in the underlying truths that are in fact falsehoods. And I'm glad that you pinpointed the one institution that should have the institutional courage to push back against this because our Lord told us this is the situation in which we're going to find ourselves, whatever the system might be, uh, the world system, whether uh, whether it is uh, uh, communism in this case and socialism or some other ideology, is always going to be opposed to the ideology of the gospel, which doesn't know any political characterization, which doesn't uh, ever receive the praise of the world. And it's this exact institution that has been captured, as you say, so often uh, the message that is emanating from that area is one that goes along with and promotes the zeitgeist of the world instead of the countercultural message that our Lord Jesus Christ brought into the world, that every one of us has human dignity and every one of us has been endowed by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our lives and to be united with him in eternity. Okay, you um, you flagged for me something on page 26, I think, um, of the uh, House Resolution 2377, Federal Extreme Risk Protection Order Act. Uh, what what is this act, and what would it require of law enforcement if it were to be implemented? Right. This is uh, one of one of the uh, bills that uh, was put up uh, in the House uh, here recently, and uh, there were two major bills. Most of the attention has gone to the other one, but both of them contain pro LGBTQ ideological uh, extremism. And, uh, wait a second, wait a second. I thought they were about gun control. Uh, well, they're supposed to be about saving the children, right? Protecting our kids. 
that's that's the way that they were always promoted. And the media obviously said nothing about this. In reality, this uh, federal extreme risk protection order, uh, this is the bill that would expand red flag laws throughout the country. This was also a provision that was in the other bill. But uh, on page 27 of H.R. 2377, it mandates training for every federal law enforcement agent in bias about, and this is a quote, uh, bias based on race and racism, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity. Uh, So in other words, you're going to have these kinds of uh, so-called diversity training, but it's going to be about gender identity and sexual orientation to make sure that you don't have quote-unquote bias here. Now, we've seen examples of this. Chris Chris Rufo, we were just speaking about uh, from Imprimus, talked about a federal training session for federal workers where they had to confess their heterosexual privilege, and uh, many of them felt compelled at the end of this training seminar to write apologies about the place that heterosexuality has as opposed to uh, LGBTQ ideology, uh, and uh, they promised they would be better allies in the future. So that's the aim of this training uh, that is going to be mainstreamed if this bill uh, becomes a law. Mm. Okay, we're going to leave it right there. Let me direct people to WashingtonStand.com. Ben Carson has an excellent commentary posted there right now about America's first freedom. Um, and why it must remain the cornerstone of our nation. So check out what Ben Johnson is working on at WashingtonStand.com. Ben, as always, thanks so much. Thank you. God bless and happy birthday. Yeah, thanks. God for many blessed years. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, who is one year older today. We'll be right back. Abigail uh, Favalli is um, is a writer. I would describe her as a contrarian. You're going to like her a lot. Um, and and I'm going to have a conversation um, with her about her new book. Um, we're really talking about where gender um, where gender comes from. Lots of gender debates going on. Um, but as Christians, I think that you know we we got to talk about where. Where does gender come from? So the book is The Genesis of Gender. And Abigail uh, Favalli is our conversation partner, my conversation with her next. What What is a Christian theory or Christian theology of gender? The Genesis of Gender, up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. We're thrilled to welcome Abigail Favalli. She is the author of The Genesis of Gender. She serves as the dean of the College of Humanities at George Fox University, where she's also a professor of English. Abigail, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So I think um, jumping into the topic, first of all, um, The Genesis of Gender, tell us a little bit about the book, and then I want to wander around with you in your personal story. Okay, sounds good. So the genesis of gender, the title has a double meaning. So first meaning is um, the book traces the development of the concept of gender um, over the 20th century and how the word has taken many different meanings and has now come to mean what it 
currently means in our contemporary moment. So showing the genesis of the concept of gender. But then I also compare that understanding of gender with the understanding of gender that's presented in the Catholic Christian tradition through Genesis. And so I, I kind of critique what I call the gender paradigm and then compare it to what I call the Genesis paradigm, which would be a, a Catholic understanding of reality and the human person and the body and language and all that, all that kind of thing. Okay, so if we're going to talk about the gender paradigm, is it fair to say that you are helping the rest of us understand what people are learning in gender studies? Yes, that's what I'm trying to do. So I have okay. a I have a background in gender studies and feminist theory, and then I converted to Catholicism about eight years ago. And so now I'm trying to take my insider knowledge of gender studies and feminist theory in order to help people outside that bubble kind of figure out what's actually going on. Because part of the problem is that people are using the term gender, but never really clearly defining it. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of subtle assumptions at work about reality, about truth, about the body. And teasing those out is really important because I think a lot of people are, aren't actually aware of maybe what's at stake or the worldview behind the concept of gender as it's currently understood. And so I'm trying to reveal that to people. So we're talking with Abigail Favalli. And now that you have heard that, you are um, trying to find her. And I totally understand that. So um, she serves at George Fox University. She's also active on Twitter, Favalli, A-B-S. And Favalli is F-A-V-A-L-E. And then A-B-S for Abigail or Abs, Favalli Abs on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay. So um, uh, first of all, I just, my notes just say this is basically gender studies for the rest of us um, in terms of the opening conversation. But then I really appreciate the way you um, you talk about the genesis of gender from Genesis, right? Like this is the genesis of it and should be for Christians, you know, where we ground our thinking, our understanding and our conversations related to this. So you're providing us not only insight into um, uh, sort of a gender paradigm, gender studies, feminist theory worldview, but you're also reminding us, teaching us, counseling us, <laughs> guiding mm -hmm. us in terms of, you know, right thinking, in terms of righteous thinking on the matter. So just really, want, I just appreciate that. The book is The Genesis of Gender. Um, Abigail, tell us a little bit about your story, because you're one of those people who um, has this beautiful testimony um, about, you know, uh, uh, examining your life, getting to the place where you examine your life, you realize that you are um, living out of a worldview that's a totalizing system that's contrary to ultimately what you discover to be the truth. So tell us, you know, sort of where you were and then how you know, what triggered even you to examine um, the way you were approaching your thought life and then everything in it? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up an evangelical Protestant living in the Western United States, and I went to college and became very interested in the question of woman and what it means to be a woman, what women should do, what we're not allowed to do, um, what God is calling women to be and do in the world especially from a Christian perspective. And that, that study, that interest in the question of woman eventually um, led me to 
really delve into feminism, especially as an undergraduate. And then when I graduated, I went on to graduate school and I, I did a master's degree in women's writing and gender theory. And then my, my doctorate's on women's writing as well, but it uses a, a lens of feminist, um, feminist theory. So I was really swept up into, into that understanding of the world. And I thought, this is what I've been looking for. This is what um, this is this is what's going to give me the answers about who I'm meant to be, what my dignity is as a woman. Um, and for a while, that seemed to be true. But then, gradually, toward the end of my twenties, um, the there were several forces in my life that kind of collided to this perfect storm. And one of those was becoming a mother. And so I, I had my first child at the age of twenty nine. And that whole experience really rattled some of my neat and tiny feminist assumptions, especially around the issue of abortion. And I remember specifically, I actually just tweeted about this because of all the stuff that's going on with the Supreme Court, but I remember having an ultrasound and this was my first child and we had to have an ultrasound at 12 weeks, which isn't normally protocol, but there was a, um, a potential abnormality they wanted to check out. And so at 12 weeks, the baby is already really fully formed. Like it doesn't look like this weird fish creature. It actually just looks like a tiny human being, but they're also still small enough that you can see them on the screen. And I was just blown away by watching him kick and move and spin. And I could see like his brain, it was incredible. And that was still in the first trimester. So that really rocked things for me because um, it made me think, wow, okay, there's something there's something not so neat and tidy about the, the feminist discourse on abortion here. And so that was one issue. I think also I, my first child was a son. And so that I began to be more interested in the experiences of boys and men in our culture and some of the difficulties that they might face. So basically my experience as, as a new mother just began to give me a little more distance from feminism enough to begin to ask questions that I just hadn't been asking before. And at the same time, I was having this escalating spiritual crisis. So I still considered myself a Christian, but I really wasn't practicing my faith at all. I just, I, I wasn't even, I was really a Christian in, in name only. And basically the only way I can explain what happened is, um, is the grace of God, really. I think I was in this place of doubting my kind of feminist worldview enough, and then also having this desire for real faith and God just met me in that place of vulnerability. And then I very suddenly became Catholic, <laughs> which is a strange, it's a strange story. I actually wrote a whole book about the story too, if you're, if any of your listeners are interested, but um, then the first two years of being Catholic were really disorienting because I, I became Catholic so quickly that I hadn't really resolved some of my feminist objections. And so it was really after I became Catholic and began to really live a sacramental life that my whole worldview began to change. <clears throat> and that's what I have really begun to realize is that being Catholic, being a Christian is not primarily about following a set of rules or having this discrete list of beliefs. It's about a, a way of seeing all that is. And Catholicism offers that holistic way of seeing everything. And once I was able to really truly enter into that, that resolved all my, all my questions, all my feminist objections. Um, and so now I'm just trying in my own work to, to write from that perspective within that scope of the Catholic cosmos, but also to draw on my experience 
being very much in a totally different kind of worldview. Hmm. We're, uh, we're talking with Dr. Abigail Favalli. She is uh, the Dean of the College of Humanities and a professor of English at George Fox University. She's joining us today um, to talk about her experience as well as her brand new book, The Genesis of Gender. If you've ever wondered, okay, what are gender study majors actually studying and what's the worldview behind feminist theory and, uh, and the whole gender paradigm in the culture today? That's what Abigail is letting us have an absolute window into um, and then moves to the important conversation about the genesis of gender from Genesis, the Christian worldview. So more on this next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Abigail Favalli, you can find her on Twitter, Favalli ABS for abs for Abigail, Favalli ABS on Twitter. Um, you can also find her at georgefox.edu. So I recently um, got to have a conversation with Oz Guinness. He's got this book out called The Great Quest, and you are um, an exemplar. I mean, it, had he had he known that he should tell your story, he would have. Um, because you are exactly the person that he's talking about in the culture um, where, you know, we are we are raised in um, in the context of a, a believing community, but it's not necessarily our own faith. And then we go off and we learn the ways of the world and the way the world is thinking about things. And it's very attractive. Um, and we become um, not only consumers of it, but purveyors of the same. And then at some point, we have this moment, this event. Um, he would call it a triggering event where we start asking these questions. Um, and it's the beginning then of a quest. And as you describe the quest, it's uh, less, you know, his personal approach, which was, you know, like <clears throat> go down the rabbit hole of philosophy and study all the thinking on the matter. Um, and but for you, you land in the same place, which is at some point there's this experience of God's grace. At some mm -hmm. point, there's this experience where truth and grace, you know, sort of bloom into faith. And um, it's beautiful. And so I, I want to affirm um not only, you know, right, that you that you share this experience, but that it's possible like you you are giving so many people hope of what's possible because there's a lot of evangelical families out there whose um, daughters are not yet where you are. Right. They are in that in between stage. And I'm wondering if we can talk about. What, if anything, might have been helpful um, along the way, questions that other people might have asked. Um, do you see where I'm going? Like, if sure, I know, yeah. if I know an Abigail who's just headed off to college or an Abigail who's headed now off to graduate school, can you help me talk to her? Hmm. Well, I think one thing that I wish someone had asked me are those deeper worldview questions because one one thing that frustrates me now about my experience in graduate school is we were immersed in these you know texts and these theories but we never actually had a conversation about okay what 
what view of the world is being taken for granted here? What are the underlying assumptions of this worldview? And do we buy into those? So it was, it was always just like, we're in this. There was no real questioning. And so I think what happened to me is that I, I basically implicitly adopted an entire new worldview, but without my conscious agreement, right? It wasn't as though yeah. I, I wasn't like, oh, um, I've, I've really been studying and thinking hard about postmodernism. And I am going to now decide to believe that all of reality is linguistically constructed and we create our own meaning, right? No, it, I began to adopt that worldview, but it was, it was kind of by osmosis over time because that was just, that was everything I was reading. That's the worldview that everyone I was in graduate school with bought into. Um, and, and so I wish that I had been, had a chance to have some kind of educator along the way um, <clears throat> really flag that for me. Mm. That said- That's I don't, so, okay. So, so I don't helpful. know if that would have well, been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah go well, I mean, it's tricky because, so here's another example, right? I, I, I did have people along the way. So I, I had a former student of mine named Stephen who also became Catholic. He's now a priest. He's actually now the godfather of all my children. And he was, he became a very helpful spiritual mentor for me, but I can remember us having these debates back when he was one of my students about say the priesthood, um, and he would be giving arguments that I now accept and think are good arguments. But at the time, I just couldn't, I was so opposed to it that I, I wasn't even in a place where I could hear him or consider the fact that he might be right. So I don't know that even if you you could have had someone who's could have said the perfect thing at the right time, you know, I think there has to be a kind of receptivity on the part of the person. And it took personal changes in my life and my heart to get me to a place of receptivity. And that takes time, right? That's not something that you can kind of control or force. So I think mm -hmm. patience is so important. Like these things happen on God's timing, not ours. And I think prayer is the most important, like behind the scenes prayer. And then, you know, looking for opportunities where it seems like there is a receptivity on the part of the person to have a question. Um, you know, to have a conversation or to, to, to feel the question about, about what they believe. Uh, but I think oftentimes it requires more patience and restraint on the part of parents and other loved ones than, you know, finding the right book to give them and that sort of thing. Although if you're going to give them a book, this is a good one. The Genesis <laughs> of Gender. Yeah, okay. that's true. Um, that's so, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask yeah. this. Um, does your does your book about your own experience tell some of those stories, like the story of Stephen? Absolutely. Yeah. So my, okay. my conversion so what's memoir. That? Yeah. Yeah. What is that book? It's called Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. And I wrote that when I wrote that book, the audience I had in mind was myself at a younger age from a different perspective. So one thing I really do try to do in my writing is I try to articulate these things in a particular tone and spirit that I think would be more, I don't know, it would be more appealing to people who aren't totally on board yet. So I try to avoid more divisive kind of language. So if you are going to give someone a book um, who's maybe really into feminism and is wrestling with their, you know, Christianity, feminism, how these things work together, um, I do think I, I really try to walk that line carefully in my books. And so um, I do recommend those. <laughs> okay. I love that. All right. Also, in, also prayer. 
I love these words, restraint, patience, prayer. So into the deep, an unlikely Catholic conversion. Um, I'm going to be checking that out. I haven't read it yet. I can also highly recommend to you uh, Abigail's brand new book, The Genesis of Gender. Abigail Favalli, um, I hope we can talk again. This has been quite a joy. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much. I think I might want to talk to Stephen as well. All right. Oh, that yeah. is uh, that is Abigail Favalli. You can find her at George Fox University. You can also find her on Twitter, Favalli ABS, Favalli Abs. She's doing a great job um, articulating the pro-life position um, to a world that uh, clearly misunderstands the gift of life and the nature of what it means to be human. So um, she's a great follow on Twitter as well as uh, worthy of reading in these larger works. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right. Yes, uh, I am hearing from those of you who um, raised an eyebrow and asked at least an internal, some of you very external questions about the fact that Abigail is a Catholic and her conversion um, took her into the Catholic Church. Um, I think that one of the things that we have to be gracious about, um, some people who were raised in Catholicism sort of recognize the flaws and the challenges related to uh, Catholic theology and practice and have migrated into um, evangelicalism. Um, Many people raised in evangelicalism have uh, desired deeply a more sacramental experience and have migrated into Anglicanism or Orthodox Christianity, um, which is the, uh, the, the church of which Ben Johnson is a part, who we just talked to a moment ago. Um, There are evangelical Catholics. Um, Abigail is one of them. And she describes um, moving into Catholicism because it provided a, quote, comprehensive, totalizing sacramental life that I find necessarily holistic, having been exposed so thoroughly to the totalizing system of gender studies. So in terms of um, finding an expression of the Christian faith where you know, God is calling you to be rooted and planted and grow and flourish. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, there have been periods of my life where I have worshiped in uh, a Methodist church, periods of my life I have worshiped in a Presbyterian church. I now worship in a Southern Baptist church. Um, the church is big and broad and wide and deep. And uh, and if you find a congregation where grace and truth, um, where truth and love um, are held in two hands equally and extended to the world that God so loves. And and you find a way to not only grow there, but express your gifts, share your gifts there, and grow in community and accountability with other Christians. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to be overly concerned about the denominational moniker on the sign. I'm going to be concerned about you being rooted and planted and growing in Christ and studying the Word of God. And will there be questions that arise? Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. There will be questions that arise. Um, The answers that Abigail offers about life and gender identity and the reality of who we are created as image bearers of God. Yeah. The genesis of gender. 
absolutely worth reading. I don't know any evangelicals that are writing out of an experience of having been gender studies majors. Like, she's lived in the totalizing worldview that we are now seeking to speak to. And so I I want to listen to her and learn from her, and I hope um, I hope you understand that. All right. Um, and yes, for those of you texting in, uh, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. <laughs> and indeed, indeed we are. Um, all right, um, let's see. Uh, Mike says, um, I love the farm report. I want to hear more about the chickens. Um, well, let's see. They are thriving. They are growing. I have learned that uh, when you have 13 baby chicks and they grow so quickly, you might have to figure out how to accommodate them in your larger coop faster than you had anticipated needing to integrate them with your six full-grown chickens. So that integration is coming fast on the farm, and there will be some hen pecking, and um, I think that that is probably forthcoming in the farm report. We're also waiting for our first rooster to expose himself. You know, they wake up one day, and they declare that they are a rooster, and uh, that day is fast coming, and I think we probably have more than one among the 13s, 13 littles, based on, well, frankly... How much fighting there already is in the little coop. I know. I know. It's a, it's an, I know, it's difficult days. All right. Uh, we got a whole nother hour of mornings with Carmen up next. Uh, let me highlight this one verse of scripture here before we go, because um, we talked yesterday about Matthew McConaughey's uh, speaking at the podium at the White House press briefing and um, lifting up testimonies uh, of the children. Uh, 10-year-old Ellie Garcia was working to memorize a verse of scripture that she was going to present at Wednesday night worship. It's this, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy might. That's who Ellie was becoming. She never got to read that verse of scripture. You and I get to live into it today as the first and greatest commandment. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.